Well, I like my jacket. <laughs> Brian likes it too. And I've had it for about two years. And I got to tell you something. So last year, when I first had it, people would compliment me on it. And um, five words would come out of my mouth. And this year, when people would compliment me on my jacket, the same five words would come out of my mouth, but then I started to make fun of myself for saying them. And those five words were, I got it on sale. Right? And what I'm making fun of myself for is, as a believer, as soon as I start to enter the world of money and possessions, and I have something that I like and that I think is good, I have a guilt response, right? There's a guilt response about me having this awesome jacket. It's express. It's large. We did get it on sale off-season. It's something that Kelsey and I got together, and it's one of those purchases where you just go, yes, I beat the system, and it's awesome, <laughs> right? So I like this jacket. But I want to tell you something. Uh, there are all sorts of feelings that we have regarding, let's see, that, that probably won't work. Let's see. Okay. <laughs> Great visual. There's a little creature next to me now. You have a lot of feelings, too. When we start to talk about money and possessions, you have feelings, too. And I want to start to identify them, because if you don't identify some of those feelings now, then you're not going to get all that God wants to do with us this morning. Some of us, and probably the biggest emotion that we feel when we start to talk about money is fear, right? I don't have enough. We're not going to make it. There's fear. Some of you, related, have anger or insecurity, Right, insecurity. I don't deal with my money as well as he does or she does. I don't know enough about it to do well. Anger. I don't have enough. Ugh, this is not fair. I lost my job. Guilt, as I just said. For, you know, we Believe it or not, regardless of how much you're struggling, easily, just by owning a car and a house, you're easily in the top 5% of the world. Actually, by owning a car, actually not a house. Just by having a car, you're easily in the top 5% of the world. But, you know, we can still have, so we have guilt feelings, right, at times. We realize, gosh, I, I have a lot. And some of us have pride, honestly. Some of you are really good at finances. You have control and pride. I know how to work the system. I'm dealing well with my money. I'm not like that other person who's squandering. I'm okay. And that pride might have gotten a little wounded, last week when Brian asked you to do a homework assignment, which I'm going to do, I'm going to ask you to do this week, and, I'm going to, and Brian's going to ask you again to do it next week, and that homework assignment is to figure out what percentage of your income you are giving to the local church. Okay, that's what that yellow sheet is for. You got in your bulletin, you got a yellow sheet. I'm going to refer that, to that again later, but that yellow sheet is to help you figure out. It's, it's tax season. Hopefully you're, uh, you're uh, finishing up your taxes, but that yellow sheet will help you figure out how much, what percentage of my income am I actually giving to the local storehouse, which is indicated in the Old Testament book of Malachi, a great thing to do. God says, test me in this, and I'll show you. All right? Anyways, I'll come back to the yellow sheet. The thing is, we have a lot of emotions. We have a lot of emotions when it comes to money and possessions. Why is that? Do you know that the good news is today is we can not live a life of obsessive thoughts and anxiety regarding money and possessions. We do not have to live that way. And to help us with that today, I want to look at a story. And it's a story of a man who had tons of feelings regarding money first, 
But after he encountered Jesus, he came away with a whole different set of feelings. So look with me, if you will, at Luke 19. We're looking at the story of Zacchaeus. Luke 19, 1 through 10. And I'm going to walk through this scripture, and then we're going to talk a little bit. Okay? (laughs) Okay, Luke 19. He, that would be Jesus, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Okay, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. We are towards the end of his ministry. He's got his face set like flint towards Jerusalem. He's getting ready for the Passion Week. So he is passing through. And behold, verse 2, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. So let's figure out some things about Zacchaeus first. Zacchaeus is akin to a traitor to his fellow Jews. Okay, he's collecting taxes on behalf of the invading, occupying power, the Romans. And in essence, he is extorting from his fellow countrymen. And he's becoming rich on that extortion, on that collecting of taxes, but clearly we'll see keeping some for himself. Maybe you remember, I have this very strong visual in my mind of pictures after World War II of French women who had entertained, quote-unquote, German soldiers during World War II. And other ones like them who had collaborated with the occupying German powers, what happened to them? As soon as the Americans came and liberated them, in the village squares, those women got their heads shaved because of having collaborated with the Germans. The the feeling towards them was so powerful. Zacchaeus, the recipient of the same kind of strong sentiment of, of hatred towards him for what he is, what he represents, getting rich on behalf of the Romans, uh, on his own countrymen, his own Jewish people. But there's something cool about Zacchaeus, and it's here in chapter, or sorry, verse 3. It says, he was seeking to see who Jesus was. Who is this guy? Again, we're at the end of his three years of ministry, so word about Jesus is spreading around Israel, and he wants to see who he is. But on account of the crowd, obviously a large crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Thank you, Luke. He's just a short guy, (laughs) small in stature. So what does he do? He's obviously pretty smart. So he runs ahead. He climbs up onto a sycamore tree. This is verse 4, to see Jesus. Sycamore tree is kind of like a small oak tree, and it has a thick trunk and wide branches. So certainly Zacchaeus stood to gain about two or three feet up there on the tree on a branch, maybe even more. For Jesus was about to pass that way. Now verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, hurry and come on down, for I must stay at your house today. Wow. We have no idea how Jesus had this information, like his name. As a good charismatic, I'd like to think it was just a word of knowledge. The Holy Spirit spoke to him. He called his name. That's certainly a possibility. Other possibilities exist. Maybe, you know, Zacchaeus was known, um, you know, he was well known enough that as the disciples were making their way to to Jericho, some of them might have been talking about him. And especially there are a couple of guys in Jesus' crew who were called zealots. In other words, they were politically very much not wanting the Romans to stay around. They really were hoping for the overthrow of the Roman Empire in Palestine, in Israel. So who knows, maybe they were talking about Zacchaeus, what a traitor he was. But for whatever reason, we don't know why, It doesn't change the outcome here. Jesus says, I'm going to stay at your house. 
And remember back then, although for us that might seem a little forward, you know, if I just came up to Josh Morgan and said, I'm staying at your house for lunch today. Let's go, Josh. What are you going to do? Sunday lunch. Let's go. A little forward, but I mean, I don't know. I just try to imagine if, pick your famous person X, you know. Famous person X that you really like comes up and says, can I stay with you today? Can we have a meal? Yes. It's great. So Zacchaeus, of course, obliges. So in this culture, that's a sign of great acceptance to say, I'm staying at your house today. So verse 6, Zacchaeus hurries, comes down, and receives Jesus joyfully. And when they saw it, this is the crowd, verse 7, they all grumbled because the very dynamic we just mentioned. It's as if today I shared with you some of the testimonies that are coming out of the Middle East about some of our ISIS guys. There are, Jesus is moving. There are a couple testimonies coming out of the Middle East of Jesus saving some members of ISIS. But it, what happened to your, yeah, okay, so there, thank you. Yeah, we have some kingdom people right here. We're really excited about that, right? That is exciting. But even my first reaction is, uh, you know, we watched ISIS behead 21 people among other atrocities. Of course, Jesus can save them. But I still have an emotional response. You know, can God's mercy really reach there? We know he can. But gosh, there's an emotional hump for me to get over. And so this crowd, same thing in verse 7. They saw it. They all grumbled. What did they say? He has gone in to be a guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord. Now this verse 8, we don't know when this happens. Is this right here in defense of all the people? Is it at the dinner table with Jesus? We're not sure, but look at what Zacchaeus says. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. Wow. Brian and I are trying to move this church to 10%. Zacchaeus gave 50% right there. Way to go. Behold, Lord, half my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it for old. That is the maximum, maximum restoration that the Old Testament speaks of. The normal restoration that was given to the Jewish people was 20%. If I steal something of yours, I need to give it back and add a fifth. But Exodus 22 mentions a special case where you can give 400%. Zacchaeus knows that, and he says, I've blown it, and I'm going to give half to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone or anything, I'll give him back 400%. Verse 9, and Jesus said to him, wow, and this is pretty amazing to me. Jesus' response is uh, intense. He says, today we have a new tither in the temple. Praise God. Is that what he says? Today we have someone who's doing a really good job on our new building campaign. No, Jesus says today salvation has come to this house. Since he, Zacchaeus, is also a son of Abraham. For the son of man, speaking of himself, Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. Simply the nearness or the proximity of Jesus' presence broke the power that money had on this man, Zacchaeus. Let me say that again. Simply the proximity of Jesus' presence is what broke the power, the grip, that Zacchaeus had on money, and that money had on Zacchaeus. Martin Luther, the famous 1500s reformer of the church, said three conversions are necessary. The conversion of the mind, the conversion of the heart, and the conversion of the purse. 
Isn't that intense? Martin Luther realized that we need a conversion of the mind, the heart, and the purse. And I think it's amazing that Jesus calls Zacchaeus a son of Abraham. Because what is the distinctive of Abraham? What, what do we know Abraham for? For what characteristic? What quality? Faith. So by faith, Zacchaeus has said yes to the lordship of Jesus. And by faith, he's giving half of what he owns away and restoring people at 400%, everything that he's messed up. Wow, that's faith. And as is so often of Jesus' words on money, because I just want to say the only thing, and Brian mentioned this last week, the only thing that Jesus talks more about is the kingdom of God. He talks more about money than he does about sex. And every time that Jesus talks about money, it becomes very evangelistic, right? The Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Should I try that on Easter? Maybe on Easter I'll say, hey, guys, anyone who's here, Jesus said this in Luke 14, 33. He said, any one of you who does not renounce everything he has cannot be my disciple. That'd be a fun altar call. Let's see how many people we get, you know? Hey, let's renounce everything and follow Jesus. And yet, it's what he said. Okay, so Jesus is evangelistic as he shares about money. And the fun thing about this too is that it's right after Jesus has just said that it was harder for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to come to the kingdom, and then a rich man comes to the kingdom, Zacchaeus. It's great. So powerful stuff, but here's the main place I want to go today. The main place that I want to go today is I want to counter what I believe to be a harmful maybe incomplete truth about money and its prevailing idea in the church today. And it is that just money is simply a neutral object or medium of exchange that we just need to steward well. Now that is true. Money is a medium of exchange and we do need to steward it well. And in fact, this whole Realign series is about stewarding that gift well. As Brian said last week, God owns everything, so we owe him everything. We need to steward this well. But the only way we can steward it well is if we get in touch with our feelings regarding money. The only way we can steward it well is if we recognize also, and this is my main point today, is that money is not neutral. Okay, there is a spiritual power behind money. And if we don't realize that and we just say, well, I just need to be a good steward of it, um, we don't, our obedience doesn't end up as complete. I'll just be honest with you. Our obedience regarding money is not as complete unless we recognize what one man named Richard Foster, who uh, has written a book that we read in our training school called The, Spirit of, uh, sorry, the Celebration of Discipline. And in his book, Money, Sex, and Power, he calls this the dark side of money. If we as a church do not come to grips with the dark side of money, then our, our obedience is not complete. And our ability to be good stewards is crippled, okay? So what I want to do is, well, I'll just say Foster says it this way. He says, don't take the sting out of Jesus' clear and severe teaching on money too quickly. Why did Jesus say to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house? Is it because Zacchaeus became a better steward or because a radical spiritual transformation had taken place? Okay, rhetorical question. If we don't acknowledge the spiritual dynamic behind money or the spiritual power behind money, then we miss Jesus's, all of Jesus' assumptions about it. And we also don't understand Jesus' very clear but very uncomfortable teachings about money. Okay? 
So I'm just going to pick three. Again, Jesus spoke about money more than anything else except the kingdom of God. But I'm just going to speak about, I'm going to highlight three of Jesus' very clear but very uncomfortable teachings about money, okay? Including, I mean, I just mentioned one of them, Luke 14, 33. It's not one of the ones I'm mentioning today, but Jesus said it. He said, anyone who doesn't renounce everything he has can't be my disciple, okay? Radical, all right? Radical. So let's figure this out. Jesus assumes that there is a power, a spiritual power behind money. How do I know that? Well, let's look at Luke 16, 13. There's a parallel in Matthew 6 that you probably know, but in Luke 16, 13, Jesus says this, after a very confusing story, actually. Brian has preached on it before. He may preach on it next week. I'm not sure. But there's this a parable that has tied the commentators up in knots for centuries. But anyways, Jesus gets really clear at the end. And here, Luke 16, 13, he says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And Jesus says this resounding, clear statement, You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and money. Now, I wish that I was at the table when the guys and gals who did this translation that we're using here, it's the English, uh, English Standard Version, which is kind of, you know, the, 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 respectful, the respectable version these days. I want to know why they didn't translate that as it is in NIV and a lot of other translations. And what is that word that they didn't put on there? Mammon. The New Testament is written in Greek, but this is an Aramaic word that's used. In other words, it'd be the vernacular of the day. Jesus and his buddies, they would have used this word, mammon. And mammon means wealth personified. It means wealth deified, okay? Jesus used the word, you can't serve God and money. He didn't use this abstraction, but he used the word that was understood to meant this personification, this deification of money. And that word was mammon. All right? When you look at Paul's writings, Paul, church planter, one who, a lot of the New Testament is his writings to churches. Paul calls, he speaks often about principalities and powers, right? You're familiar with maybe Ephesians 6. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against Powers and principalities in the heavenly realm, right? In heavenly places. That Greek word is exousia. In other words, Paul over and over, over again recognizes that there are spiritual powers that influence our life. And I believe that clearly when Jesus says you can't serve God and money, he's not talking about an abstraction that needs to be well stewarded. He's talking about mammon, something that has a spiritual dynamic behind it. Okay, there are powers behind it. You cannot serve God and mammon. If money was neutral, why would Jesus have said this? In fact, all of Jesus' hard and uncomfortable but very clear teachings on money, they don't make any sense unless we acknowledge that there is a power behind it. Let's go to the second one of the three. I'm I'm just illustrating Jesus' clear but uncomfortable teachings on money. Here's the second one. Okay, Luke 18, 18 to 30. It also appears in Matthew 19. A really wonderful young man. I can see him as a Gordon guy, okay? (laughs) Gordon student, looks good, acts good. He's done all the right clubs. He's gone to every ministry meeting in the world. He's a leader in ministries, okay? That's who he is. And he comes to Jesus and he says, I think he just wants to connect with Jesus. And he's probably pretty secure, you know? 
And he says, hey, teacher, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, here's the commandments. How are you doing on those? He says, I'm awesome. He doesn't really say it. We, we want to get a, I, don't know, I don't know what his attitude is, but he says, I think he's, he's very clean-hearted, actually. He says, I've done all of these since my youth. Yes, I'm good. And Jesus, God, the God-man, who's always putting his thumb right where we are idolatrous, right where we're under the grips of spiritual powers that we need to not be under the grips of anymore. Jesus says, I got one more thing for you. Go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And it says the rich young ruler, only Matthew says he's young, the rich ruler goes away. How does he feel? Sad. A strong emotion regarding to money. Why? Because he had a lot. He had a lot. Now again, if money is just a neutral object that is a medium of exchange, this story makes no sense. But if Jesus recognized that there's a power behind it that grips people's hearts, that story makes sense, doesn't it? Because he went away sad. And notice Jesus didn't come running after him in the parking lot saying, wait, I'm just kidding. Actually, just give to the temple 10% and you'll be good. Jesus didn't chase after him. He said, this is the next thing for you as far as discipleship. And he couldn't do it because money has a power. Okay, money has a grip. There's a spiritual power behind it. It is not merely neutral. And lastly, let me give you this last illustration. Uh, and let me, let, me, let me frame it with maybe a modern parallel. You know, we have a wonderful uh, office complex in this city called the Coming Center. Our church office is actually in it, 328G. If you can find it, I'll serve you coffee. It's just so hard to get to this office. It's so huge. On any given day, there are 5,000 people in the Coming Center. Well, the history behind that, which is really fascinating, I encourage you to look it up online, but I'll just give you a brief deal. You know, there's a company called United Shoe Manufacturing, USM, that opened its doors there in 1906 and just thrived. Actually, the city of Beverly did not experience the depression like a lot of other towns in Massachusetts did because of the shoe, as they called it because this company was doing so well. They had patents on all sorts of different things. They were thriving during World War II because of how they supported the military uh, and everything. But then in the 60s, things started to go south. And again, you can read that on your own. And so I, I don't know at what point that just became an empty shell of buildings. But then 19 years ago, a man and his wife, Bill and Joyce Cummings, bought that coming center. And by the mid-90s, after about 25 years in business, Bill and Joyce Cummings has, have, had established themselves as just commercial real estate powerhouses in this region, but also in the country. They're very successful. And just imagine, I mean, all the good that uh, the Cummings do, it's incredible. Actually, I just picked this up this morning from the office. I found it outside the elevator. I just found out that the CFI, kind of funny name, the Cummings Foundation Incorporated, just gave away $100 million. They do that every year. Excuse me, $10 million. They give away 100 grants of $100,000 each. So they give away $10 million every year. And their uh, unrestricted assets as a foundation are $1,200,000,000. Successful guys, and they are doing a lot of good, aren't they, for our community? Can you imagine if I had the gall in 1996 before... Bill and Joyce Cummings renovated that whole Cummings Center. If I said, Bill, I don't know the guy. I don't know his heart. This is just an illustration. But imagine if I said, Bill, you're a fool. Building up your business like you are, you're a fool. 
I don't think that'd sit well with too many people in the community. But this is exactly the story that Jesus tells. I want to, we just got to read it actually, it's so good. Jesus is, is doing his ministry. Someone in the crowd says, hey, can you help me, Jesus? Help me split my inheritance with my brother. And Jesus takes that opportunity to say, you know what? You guys should be on guard against all covetousness. Be on guard against desiring more stuff because your life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then he tells the story. Check this out. Ooh. Uncomfortable. Very clear. But awkward. Thank you, Jesus, for being awkward. Where are we? Luke 12? Yeah. Okay, Luke 12, parable of the rich fool. I'm going to pick it up in 16. And Jesus told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for yourself for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, great job, way to build the farm. But God said to him, fool, you fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? And Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Ouch. If money is just a medium of exchange that's neutral and just needs to be stewarded well, this parable makes no sense. But because there is a spiritual power behind mammon, Jesus says, he makes it very clear that we are not to be gripped by this power. Money is not neutral. Look at the number of pastors. Look at the number of politicians. Look at the number of public people who go down for embezzlement or some other inappropriate dealing with money? Is it just because they didn't get trained to steward it well, or that money has a power that is bigger than just the material thing? Look at how the conversations go when we talk about salaries, right? We, have, we give so much value. We judge people's value so much based on salary, and we judge ourselves based on the salaries that we make. I always got a kick. I used to work for a city as a public school teacher west of Boston several years ago. And I always got a kick out of the fact that every year they would publish the top 10 city salaries. Now, the city salaries are all public. I actually just looked last night on some of them from 2013. But the thing that always I got a kick out of was that the custodian of the high school that I was in made more than 150, less than 200, but more than 150 grand a year. And this custodian was awesome. And they were short-staffed, so he got it by you know, by overtime, and I, I, I was so thankful for all the blessings he gave me in terms of my room and everything, but I saw that, you know, I saw the superintendent, 250, this custodian, you know, 175 or whatever, right? Last night, I'm looking at the salaries from the same city, and I realized that one of my former students, who is maybe 25 years old, he's a firefighter, and we can't pay those guys enough, but he makes $400 a year less than I do, Right? I'm just bringing you in. There's some emotions, right? Are you feeling some of the emotions when we talk about salary? The mayor of the city only makes like 110. Superintendent of schools, 250. <laughs> we just had the conversation as CFI elders about compensation. And we're going to tie pastor's compensation to the school system as a way of saying, hey, we're trying to be modest. 
But even that conversation among the CFI elders, you've got, you've got five men who are 40 and 50 and 60, and what's on the line emotionally at times is our value and our sense of worth. And you can hear in some of our voices some of the, Ugh, how come people don't value me? Why do I get paid the same as this firefighter? <laughs> you know, he's 17 years younger than me. I'm just saying money's not neutral. If it was more neutral, we would not have these teachings from Jesus. So there's power behind mammon. But how do we get free then? How do we get free? How do we get free from the grip that mammon can have on our hearts? And this is where the story of Zacchaeus is so helpful to us. Because all that happened, Zacchaeus just needed a glimpse of Jesus. Jesus responded by saying, hey, I'm coming to your house. Proximity to the presence of Jesus is what breaks the power of mammon. Proximity to Jesus' presence, that's what breaks the power of mammon in our lives. Jesus drew near to Zacchaeus, and he responds with faith. And he says, I believe that you're Jesus. And he responds with some obedience, right? He's understood the power of money over his life, and so he can give away half that he owns, and he can restore at 400%. Proximity to the presence of Jesus, that's what breaks the power of mammon over us. So what I want to suggest today, as we head towards taking communion, talk about the presence of Jesus, as far as the means of grace that God has given the church, he's given us worship, he's given us prayer, he's given us fellowship, He's given us communion as a great means of grace to get near to his presence. I'm going to invite you to to get near to Jesus' presence. And you ask him, Lord, will you please break the power of mammon over my life? I want to suggest three things to us as a church, as practical ways, aside from communion, practical ways that we can get into his presence, get near to his presence so that it can break the power of mammon over our hearts. And thanks to Richard Foster again for, I'm, I'm selecting two of these from his book, Money, Sex, and Power. The first is, we need to create here an atmosphere of confession and accountability, just like we do for the sexual stuff, all right? It's pretty accepted in the church today that when we get together for discipleship, when we're walking with our band of brothers or our sisterhood, that we get in that place, right? We do talk about sexuality. We say, hey, here's where I'm tempted. But again, Jesus talked more about money than that. So we need to create an atmosphere here at the harbor in our discipleship groups where we have the same level of accountability. I seem to remember a wise person saying, God gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud. It's a proverb, and then Peter picks it up in one of his letters. God gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud. So let someone in. It would be great when it, it's great when it's a husband-wife team. It's great when it's one of your friends, one of your sisters or brothers, and you say, help me. I feel the grip of mammon. You know, look at my spending. How am I doing here? All right? So the first thing is just atmosphere of accountability. Start to bring that into your discipleship. You initiate. Don't wait for the other person to initiate. You bring into your discipleship. Can you help hold me accountable to how I'm relating to money? Okay? Everyone excited about that? Okay, there we go. <laughs> Kingdom man right here. Come on, Dimitri. Okay. All right. Second thing is, what contemplatives like 
Richard Foster call inner renunciation. Again, I call to mind Luke 14, 33. Anyone of you who wants to follow me must renounce everything that he has, renounce, in order to be my disciple. What takes the dagger right into the heart of the God of mammon in our hearts at times is just renouncing things, right? Like just saying no to this, that, or the other. So I've already checked with my wife, and I'm going to do, can you guys please help me? I'm going to get zero heavenly reward for this because I'm doing this publicly. But I've talked to Kelsey, and we've decided that I want to I model some inner renunciation, and I want to give away this jacket today, okay? So actually, we're not going to start communion until someone who wants this leather jacket from Express, it's large, I want you to come and take this thing off the stage, and I'm waiting for you. Here we go. Who wants this jacket? It's yours. I want to renounce this thing. Okay, come on, John. Take it. It's yours. Thank you. All right. I, okay, give me the keys. I took out. Yeah, you can have my car. I did take out the wallet because that would be complicated. Yeah. I mean, hey, if you want a 97 old, it's all yours, buddy. Okay. A little inner, inner renunciation goes a long way. Boom. I'm a little bit more free, right? Which brings me to the third stop, step and back to this yellow sheet, all right? I want you to do your homework, and your homework is to figure out, in 2014, how much as a percentage of your income did you give to the local church? Brian and I have a sneaky two-year, five-year, ten-year plan. It's, I, however long it takes, we don't care. We just want to move this church up 1% up more towards the biblical standard of the tithe. Right? The average American church gives 3% of its income. We want to get you up to 10%. If it takes 10 years, we'll do it. But we just, we just want you to go 1% more. Okay? That's what we're going to celebrate on Palm Sunday with our brunch. We're going to celebrate everyone saying, one more percent. I actually gave 4% last year. Now I'll make it 5 Some of you maybe are giving 6%, and you'll make it to 10 and we'll celebrate. Okay? But I want you to hear this. I am inviting you to do this, not because I give a lick about my salary. And I mean that sincerely. If you want to take 10000 away, great. I can, we, we'll, we'll live. We'll make it work. Because what happens, though, the reason I care about us doing this is because the kingdom of God comes when people start to obey God, when they start to get freed up. Did you see it in Zacchaeus? Right? The, he said, what Jesus said to Zacchaeus was, salvation has come today. Right? The kingdom of God came on earth because Zacchaeus got free from that grip of mammon. And that's what I want the harbor to do and be. I want us to be a people set free from the grip of mammon because the kingdom will come. Just like the kingdom came yesterday. I was with JD, my son. We were at Texas Roadhouse, and we just asked our waiter, can we pray for you? And guess what? A little bit of heaven came down because we had a little obedience there. When you start to move and get free from mammon, a little bit of the kingdom comes. A little bit of the kingdom came, right? I'm free. I don't get stuck in stuff. You've got a great jacket, and John's going to pay it forward, and he'll... He'll do some inner renunciation himself. He'll give away something that he's too attached to. And the kingdom comes because we're free from our stuff. Amen? For some of you, inner renunciation just means, Lord, the season of, of, of um, restraint or the season of lack is difficult for me. Right here I am talking about inner renunciation. And some of you are struggling to pay your heating bills. I understand that. And part of that inner renunciation may be, okay, God, things are so tight and they've been tight, and it looks like they're going to be tight forever. I receive these restraints right now. God, have mercy on me. Help us. I don't know what the inner renunciation looks like for you. 
but watch what happens when you do it and how you get free and how the kingdom comes, right? So we're creating an atmosphere of accountability. We're doing some inner renunciation. We're renouncing our attachment to mammon. And third thing, I'm asking you to do your homework. Look at your percentage of giving because when you start to move towards that biblical standard of a tithe, it's going to release heaven and it's going to release joy in you. Was Zacchaeus happy that day? Was Jesus happy that day? Were the poor around Zacchaeus happy that day? Were the people he cheated who are now getting 400% happy that day? They were happy because the kingdom of God was coming. Amen? Okay, you guys stand. And we'll get, pro- we'll get proximity to Jesus through communion today. Jenna and worship team, why don't you guys come up? Proximity to Jesus and his presence is what breaks the power of mammon. And we will get to the light side of money. We talked about the dark side today, meaning that there is this force. We will get to the stewardship part. Brian's going to bring us there next week. And then Sean Richmond, the president of our movement of churches, he'll be with us on Palm Sunday. I'll actually be preaching at the river. I'm going to run back here to be with us, with my family, with our home church today for that brunch on Palm Sunday. But Sean will also help us get to where we want to be. Let's pray.